This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Got Science, a new podcast from the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is a nonprofit science advocacy group with over 20,000 members. Learn more about their new show over at gotsciencepodcast.org. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 274 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the common horror trope of kids battling monsters and discussing why it's such a popular idea and whether it really makes sense. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendrix, making his 11th appearance on the show. He's the author of such novels as Satan Loves You and My Best Friend's Exorcism, and his novel Horror Store, about a haunted Ikea, is being developed for television by Gail Berman, producer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. His nonfiction book Paperbacks from Hell, about the horror boom of the 70s and 80s, hits bookstores this week. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Then next up, we've got John Langan, making his seventh appearance on the show. He's the author of the novel House of Windows, and the short story collections Mr. Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters, and The Wide Carnivorous Sky and Other Monstrous Geographies. Together with Paul Tremblay, he edited the anthology Creatures, 30 Years of Monsters, and his new novel The Fisherman won the 2017 Stoker Award for Best Novel. So, John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. And also joining us today is Erin Lindsay, making her fifth appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace, as well as the Nicholas Lenoir series of historical paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. She spent over a decade working for the United Nations in dozens of countries around the world, and she also writes the Villain of the Month feature over at Pornokitch.com. So, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be back. And today's show is brought to you by Got Science, a new podcast from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Science is under attack today like never before, with the Trump administration using every dirty trick they can think of to attack scientists and suppress scientific information, going so far as to staff government agencies with scientifically illiterate cronies who have no experience or qualifications. This all-out assault on science is mobilizing large numbers of scientists to get involved in politics for the first time, and the Union of Concerned Scientists is at the vanguard of that effort. Got Science is a new show where you can hear directly from the scientists who are on the front lines, fighting to get the truth out there. I just listened to two of their recent episodes. The first was episode 14, Failing Science, which covers efforts by the UCS to track the Trump administration's many attacks on science and to lend support to scientists who are fighting back. If you're a government scientist who's been targeted by the administration, or if you know someone who is, this episode contains important information on how you can obtain support and legal counsel from the UCS. The second episode I listened to was episode 13, Living with Rising Seas, which reports on the effects that rising sea levels are having on different coastal communities and what science can teach us about the best ways to respond. So obviously this is all really important stuff, and I would strongly encourage everyone to do whatever you can to support the Union of Concerned Scientists, and definitely go check out their new podcast, Got Science, which is available on iTunes or from gotsciencepodcast.org. So again, the URL is gotsciencepodcast.org. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, and so as we're recording this, the nation is in the grips of It Mania, with the new adaptation of Stephen King's classic novel It being basically the most popular horror movie ever. So, Grady, why do you think this movie is so popular and doesn't have anything to do with the movie's cast of adorable scamps? 
Um, man, I don't know. I don't know why this movie is so popular. Nothing against the movie, but I don't get it. Um, but this seems to be the year for horror, you know, Get Out, Split, uh, and now this are all doing really well. It was a lazy, quiet summer at the box office. It had an amazing trailer, and it looks great. And it's a killer clown, which is like a really easy concept to get, you know, people excited about. Who likes clowns? No one except clowns. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, I think that has a lot to do with it. And also, there it doesn't hurt that sort of... Um, uh, it serves as a template for Stranger Things, which is super popular, and people are starting to get sort of lubricated up with excitement now that the second season of that's on the way. But so what role do you think the fact that there's a bunch of kids starring, do you think that that plays a role in this movie being so popular? No, I don't think anyone was sitting around saying, God, I would really, you know, totally, totally see the new Star Trek movie if it was all like kids. Um, <laughs> like, I, I don't think anyone's been looking for a movie just with kids. But I do think the kids fighting monsters trope is hugely, hugely primally um uh, 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 whatever that word is that writers know. Um, hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's fair. It's a fairy tale. Like kids fighting monsters has a real primal hold on our imagination. I mean, ever since Scooby-Doo and even before, um, it's been, and, and back to fairy tales, it's been a really resonant trope. Hmm. How about Aaron? What do you think about the fact that this it movie is being so popular? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I reckon it's down to a lot of factors and I, and I think the, the nostalgia boom um, is a big part of it. Um, I've banged on in the past about uh, how studios are banking more and more. I mean, they always did, but especially now in known brands. And obviously, Stephen King is is a known brand. And this is this is a big one for for those of us who grew up in the seventies and eighties. People are familiar with the book. They're familiar with the story vaguely, even if they haven't read the book or, or seen the the miniseries or any of the things that came before. So it's a known quantity. Um, I wonder whether people are also aching for a good Stephen King movie, given that a lot of people felt that The Dark Tower was a disappointment that may or may not play a role. But but yeah, and, and Killer Clowns, as Grady said, I mean, that's that's a that's a huge one. And I think we all have our own deep seated fear of clowns, <laughs> do we not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it, it's interesting with The Dark Tower, because that also had kind of a kid protagonist. Um, and Idris Elba. Well, but but they had this kid who's sort of the audience audience surrogate, who's like our you know we learn what's going yeah. on along with him, and mm -hmm. uh, and that movie did not um, generate a lot of excitement, even from the trailer particularly. Um, so it's just interesting how these two different Stephen King adaptations have been received so differently. But it's a classic, um, and and when I when I say a classic I don't just mean a classic among Stephen King fans I mean I think it as a brand I mean that for me certainly um as somebody who didn't devour a bunch of Stephen King books I read one or two um as a preteen and a teenager it is one of those sort of top line Stephen King brands I think and also I have to say let's not forget that the other Stephen King movie adaptation that really holds a place in people's hearts is another kids versus monsters metaphorical monsters but stand by me yep um so so john langan what do you think about this what do you think about this uh it being so popular well i think it has has always been um you know one of the one of king's kind of i, I don't know magnum opi or is that the the proper way to phrase <laughs> that um you know he um i mean he, he talks about it um 
Man, back when when Doug Winter wrote his uh, Stephen King, The Art of Darkness, at the end of that of that study, um, a sort of you know quasi biography, critical study, whatever. Um, he, he he looks ahead to it, and and he looks ahead to it as this kind of culmination of all these things that he's been working on up to that point, um, specifically kids and monsters, and and so I, I think there's there's very much that sense of here's this guy who at a certain point in his career looked back over everything that he had done and, and distilled it all into this, uh, into this single book. And, and I think that, um, it is, it, it, it's one of those everything, but the kitchen sink, everything and the kitchen sink kinds of, of books. And, and I think that it has, um, over, over the years now, over the decades, um, it's really, uh, accumulated or, or, or achieved this, this kind of reputation amongst, um, a lot of King's novels, you know, you, you look at the body of the man's work, man, there's a lot of stuff there. And this is one of those books that people refer to again and again and again. Oh, what are your five favorite Stephen King novels? It seems that it pops up an, an awful lot on that list. So I, I think that's part of it. Um, I think the nostalgia thing, it's it's possible. Yeah, um, there there is. I kind of wonder too if if there isn't, um, and maybe this is just me being sort of like Pollyanna-ish, or, or um, but but if there isn't some kind of an appetite for something that isn't uh, a reboot, and I know this is a reboot in some ways, right? We had the 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 miniseries, um, uh, the TV miniseries with with Tim Curry, but I, I still wonder, you know, this is different from the latest reboot of Halloween or or Friday the Thirteenth, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or whatever. This is going back to a book and and trying to to do a new adaptation of that book, which I think is is different from um, from just trying to to say, oh, you know, this time Jason's in outer space. <laughs> Well, I thought one thing that was interesting is after we saw this movie, um, some of my friends were saying that even though this is an R-rated movie, that it almost is a movie you could take the whole family to. I mean, you know, the the R rating notwithstanding, it really is kind of a, you know, a, a likable, approachable movie. Um, it is kind of for all ages in a weird way. Well, yeah, I mean, it is, but also it's it's interesting because, I mean, you have the whole thing they really play up with Bev and her dad, which has all those sort of like really overt uh, sexual abuse things going on in it. And, and you also have a kid, you know, slitting his father's throat and letting him bleed out full on screen. So it's like, it, it almost could be for kids, but then it makes a couple of these real steps over the line that I think would discourage a lot of parents from taking kids. It's interesting. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. I mean, that the, it's interesting because those moments don't stand out in my mind. What stands out in my no. mind is the the stand by me childhood friendship kind of aspects of the movie. I agree, which makes those moments seem even weirder to me. Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they like really decided to go for it with some of that stuff to ensure an R rating, just because you know. I mean, it's good at the box office right now. Yeah. See, John Langa, did you you saw the new it? No, I have not seen. Uh, I've not seen the new it. I. Um... What's interesting to me, though, is that it seems most of my students were all back at school now, and and most of uh, most of my college students have been to see it, and uh, they love it. They're they're all uh, they're all agog, and and some of them have said, uh, well, you know, it's not the novel, but it's it's still not bad. And and the ones who haven't read the novel have just said, oh, it's so scary. I was so frightened. 
Um, and that, uh, you know, that makes me maybe more happy than it should, but, um, yeah, it, it seems, um, I, I guess I often use my students maybe rightly or wrongly as, as a kind of a gauge, you know, how does this thing seem to be doing? Is it, is it something I really should check out? And, um, because uh, yeah, there have been a lot of, of, uh, less than rewarding adaptations of, of King's work and, um, and yeah, I, I, I will get to this one. Well, and Erin was telling me that she wasn't able to see it because uh, she has relatives visiting and they didn't want to go see it, which kind of surprises me because it seems like everybody wants to see it. It's the it's the it movie of the summer, <laughs> if you will. Well, I mean, but not everybody's <laughs> up for horror, are they? And, you know, I'm a big girl. I could go to the theater by myself. But one of the things that I really enjoy about a horror movie, and I feel this way about comedy, too, I don't mind watching them by myself at home. but I think it's just no fun to see them in the theater on your own because part of what's fascinating about them is being part of it. I feel it that way about sports. I really prefer to watch them at the bar when everybody is into it and, and you're re you're reacting to the same things in real time and you kind of uh, pinball off each other a little bit. That's what I really appreciate about it. And so I didn't have, nobody was down for creepy clowns. And so I was like, well, you know what, I'm going to have to put this on hold. Um, I mean, even though, and and just, I guess, as part of a, a testament to the cultural phenomenon that it is right now, um, Pennywise, the creepy clown in question, will will be um, our villain of the month at pornokitch.com in October. Um, I've had a couple of friends who do movie reviews writing to me, asking for my thoughts on it because they're going to review it. So it's coming up sort of in, in, all the, in all the spaces, but I really wanted to watch it right. So, so nobody thinks that this movie is being super popular because it's about kids and that's something that people actively want to watch. I think if that, I only think it's popular in that sense from a sort of purely subconscious level, just because these stories, these kind of stories have such a hold on us. Um, but one thing that surprised me about it is just sort of like, I, I enjoyed it. I had a fine time, but God, it was empty. I mean, there was just really nothing there beyond the surface, which I thought was really interesting for for an adaptation of a book that's so sort of rich with stuff. It was it was kind of fascinating. I mean, it re there really is nothing more to this movie than watching a bunch of kids fight a scary clown. <laughs> <laughs> but what well, more do you need? <laughs> <laughs> well, but do, do you not think, Rady, that there's just something natural about kids fighting monsters because kids tend to believe in monsters more than adults do. And so there's just something something natural, well, I mean, natural about I mean, that. And that's definitely part of the movie, right? That whole thing where like, you know, um, and, and that's in the book too, but not as much. They really play it up in the movie that all these terrible things happening, the adults all turn a blind eye to, and only the kids really see the red balloons and the monsters and the, the bullying and all the horrible stuff going on. Um, but, you know... And, and I think stories about kids fighting monsters, I mean, they're twofold, right? I mean, part of it is that fairy tale lesson of kids fighting monsters to prove that, you know, to learn the lesson that monsters can be defeated. And, and part of it's also, you know, kids really identify with monsters because monsters are powerful and scary and unstoppable and kids are largely small and helpless and, and have no power. Um, so there's always that. I was just surprised that so little of that was played up in this movie, except for the whole thing with the adults not, you know, acknowledging what the kids were going through, which they really did a good job with. Mm -hmm. 
But, but Dave, you know, when you say it's interesting, because on the one hand, I agree with you that that kids fighting monsters is very natural. On the other hand, it's also deeply unnatural. And one of the things I think is interesting when I was reflecting on this is talking about it as a horror trope. To me, it makes a lot more sense in the sort of lighter film kind of Steven Spielberg vein of kids fighting bad guys, um, sort of a Scooby-Doo Goonies kind of approach versus kids fighting monsters in, 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 in horror as such. Like the, we don't have that many taboos left in terms of what we're allowed to see on screen, but the taboos that we deal, we do still have, a lot of them are, are about kids. We don't want to see egregious violence perpetrated against children. We don't want to see sexual violence or sexual acts with children. And I'm speaking in generalities here, but these are still very controversial when they happen. And so it's funny when you put that into the context of so many of these other horror tropes, and there are lots of different subgenres of horror, obviously, but in a genre that's sometimes famous for extreme violence and, um, and oftentimes a lot of sex putting little kids um, and I'm separating this from sort of teenagers into that context is actually really weird when you think about it. Well, that was one thing that was striking me. I mean, talking about these examples like id and stranger things, super eight and monster squad, things like this have a, a pretty comedic tone. I mean, even it being this R rated horror movie is at least as much funny as it is scary. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and, and there, there's not there's no like torture porn or like really horrific things happening. Like none none of the kids in any of these movies, um, none of the young kids that I can think of die or you know, yeah, get like tied up and tortured or anything like that. So yeah, I, I agree with you that there is that they do tend to to hew to the more sort of lighthearted treatment of the of the subject. But but I have to say there is a big tradition in horror of kids being the monster. Um, I mean, all the way back to the bad seed, you know, in the fifties and then on up through the omen and, uh, it's spinoffs and then a huge chunk of horror novels in the seventies and eighties. And then all the way into the whole narrative that came out of Columbine, which was, you know, largely fictitious and fabricated. Um, this idea of monstrous children who want to kill us, who must be destroyed and punished is a really, really big part of horror. We're so fine with kids committing violence. We're just not fine with violence being committed against children. I mean, the fact that, like, I barely noticed in Logan all of the violence committed by this little kid. And then I thought about it afterwards and like, that's awful. As the, as the Spanish movie, the famous, famous Spanish movie about killer kids of the 70s asked, who can kill a child? <laughs> See, John Langan, what do you think about this? Yeah, no, it's this. This is something I was thinking about a, a lot, looking uh, like in the sort of run up to the to the uh, the show today, when I was I was looking at the um, the suggestions from um, uh, from Facebook and and from Twitter, things that people were interested in, and and you know I, I got sort of thinking about like what's the what's the kind of genealogy of this, you know, and and um, I, I I was thinking, you know, I I I, I agree with Grady that there's this long tradition of children as monsters, you know, and and um, but there's also I I think a long tradition of of children in jeopardy, right? Um, go back to the turn of the screw, you know, go back to Henry James, right? And and you've got these two beautiful little children, Flora and Miles, and they're in a house, and this governess is is looking after them. And she thinks that these evil spirits 
um, who may or may not even be fully human, are trying to corrupt the children. And then what's worse, so, so at first, the, the children are these, these sort of objects almost, these you know, sort of vessels of innocence that are, are being contested over by this virtuous governess and these evil spirits. Um, and then as, as the, the novel progresses, um, you start to think that the children may have already been corrupted by the ghosts, by these, by these evil figures. And now the, the governess is not, the, the struggle moves a little bit closer to home. They're, they're no longer, she, she can't save them anymore. They've, they've all, she's already failed to assert. She all, um, she, she's always already failed or something, something, uh, deconstructive like that. Um, and you know, uh, uh, Mr. James has a. I was trying to remember the name of his ghost story. He's a ghost story that has a, a the ghost, this particularly evil child that, that shows up. Um, it is it is, uh, is quite frightening. I think that's the one. Yeah, yeah, that that might be it. Um, and then that kind of moves forward. Um, yeah, you know, uh, think about uh, John Wyndham, right? The Midwich Cuckoos, um, all you know, Village of the Damned. You know, all these beautiful little uh, uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed children who are going to show up and are, are going to take over. And and so there's this this thing that happens in 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 horror narratives over the last you know century at least, um, where the the children become they're, they're simultaneously. Um, in jeopardy, but then they're also the the um, the source of the of the jeopardy. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby, right? I mean, The Exorcist. Think about what's going on there. Reagan is she's she's this victim of this of this horrible thing that's happening. She's also this really really scary monster. Um, and even if we're trying to save her, she's still really frightening and and really dangerous. So this really to me, there's this really fascinating double movement that happens in in some of the more interesting examples of this stuff. I think, though, that there's also, not to ramble on too much, but I think if you go back maybe to Ray Bradbury and Something Wicked This Way Comes, that seems to me one of the early cases where you have a, a much more straightforward, actually, but even that isn't straightforward. You've got two boys, two, two you know, adolescent boys who are threatened by, by the evil carnival, but one of them is also tempted by the evil carnival. And that's, that's part of a part of the drama of the, of the book. It's, it's not simply us versus them, but it's, it's, you know, um, how to, <laughs> how does us feel about them? Maybe, maybe one of us at least would like to go with them. Um, and, and I think that King, I think King draws a lot on Bradbury. I, I think Bradbury is, uh, I mean, he writes about something wicked this way comes in, in Don's macabre. Um, and I, I think that he in turn really influences a lot of other writers. Straub, uh, in Shadowland writes about, uh, children uh, contesting with, uh, with evil. Um, uh, and a whole bunch of the writers, it seems to me during that, you know, uh, subsequent to, to King, wind up doing some version of this, the kid versus monster story. Well, can I ask you, John, I mean, speaking of the genealogy of, of these ideas, because that is one thing that occurred to me watching this It movie is how familiar it seems that it's been copied many, many times. And one of the ideas that has been copied many, many times, it seems to me, is this idea that if you don't fear the monster, it loses all of its power over you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that sort of levels the playing field, right? Because a kid can fight a monster if they can just control their inner mental state or whatever. But I'm just curious, how far back does that idea go? Do you see that, like, 
in 19th century literature or early 20th century literature, this idea that if you don't fear the monster, it can't hurt you? Um, you know, you definitely see it in Bradbury. In in uh, in Bradbury, um, Will's uh, father, uh, Charles, who, who's also part of the of the action, um, to a certain extent, just you know, he he succeeds in in def- in, in staving off the the attack of the Mister Dark and and his and his Dust Witch um, by uh, by laughter and and by. Um, uh, you, know, you want to say the power of positive thinking, but but it's it's more profound than that as Bradbury presents it. It's actually this this kind of deep seated affirmation of of sort of the principle of life or, or something like that. Um, I, I think um, in uh, you know going back to James as, as a starting point, and I don't think he's the starting point. I just don't know. I'm not sure what happens before that. You know, like like. Um, I, I can't like in Le Fanu or, or any of those guys, I'm not aware of, of this same thing happening, but, um, in, in James, the, with the governess, it's, it's much more, she's not sure she's going to win, you know, but, but she does feel herself. She, she is the daughter James tells us of a, of a vicar. And so she has some kind of religious upbringing and, and she seems to feel that that equips her to at least try to, to contest these, uh, the, the, for the souls of these children. But that's different, um, than this notion that a creature that responds to you sort of psychically, you know, the, the Pennywise, right. Is to a certain extent, he's a sentient mirror or she really is a sentient mirror, um, who, uh, you know, who reflects back at you that which, which you fear the most. And, and so since, since Pennywise is so caught up in, in your kind of mental energy, you can sort of turn that to your own advantage. Straub actually does something like that in, in ghost story. Um, the monster, uh, the, the sort of Manitou figure in ghost story is another kind of a mirror. It's, it's another kind of, of reflector. And, um, there's a, actually a young guy, he's a, he's a high school uh, student. So he's a little older than say the kids in it. Um, but he kind of figures out that if this thing is, is, has gotten in his head that he can turn that to his advantage and, and use that to actually, uh, to actually harm the monster. It would be interesting. I don't know. It never occurred to me before that, that maybe King got the idea from Straub. <laughs> it's entirely possible in this case that he did. Well, just, just really quickly, when you were saying La Fanu, he does have Carmilla, which is about the vampire child and the, the innocent child she feeds on. You know, you, you're right. I just, I guess I always, there's so much sort of panting sexuality in that, that I always <laughs> think of, of, uh, I always think of Camilla as a little bit older, but I honestly don't remember is, yeah. is I always think of her as like 15 or 16, but maybe not. I, I would have to go back and check again, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Well, so, well, so Grady, when you did all your research for paperbacks in hell, did you see this idea that you just, if you just don't fear the monster, it can't hurt you? Like absolutely prior to- not. Absolutely not. Um, honestly, the monster is the monster is the monster uh, in a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, like John was saying, I think something wicked this way comes, which is, I guess, 62 um, yeah. is is really I can't think of really a time, a, another instance where you just sort of like as long as you don't fear the mon- where the only in the only fear is fear itself. But right off the heels of that, which actually is a really big deal in this conversation, I think, which plays with the same idea as Scooby-Doo. 
Scooby-Doo, the second they stop being scared of the monster and pull its mask off, oh, it's just the old carnival owner. And it's instantly unpowered and depowered and the motives are revealed and justice is served. But I didn't see that in much many paperbacks, to be honest, of the 70s and 80s. Um, but, sorry, it's kind of a biblical idea, though, is it not? Uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you? Hmm. Maybe more Puritan idea. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. I mean, but, the, but it's less resisting and more laughing at. So yeah, so that's been popularized into the adage "mock the devil and he will flee from you." Yeah, and just looking sure. for that and seeing. I mean, the the mock the devil quote is definitely old, and I'm just trying to figure out how old. Um, but in terms of, doesn't seem to come directly from the Bible. Um, but it's certainly something that, that I grew up hearing as a popular phrase, mock the devil and he will flee from you. So if the monsters can't be defeated that way, did they just always kill the kids in these other stories? Like, how else is a kid going to fight a monster other than, like, you know, not being afraid of them or something, right? They're not going to well have a gun Jack, or... Jack the Giant Killer, you know, he murders... Jack the Giant Killer murders the monster... Uh, Hansel and Gretel push the witch in the oven. Um, kids, kids have been, I mean, invaders from Mars in like 1952 or three. Um, you know, the kid, the kid is able to defeat the monsters by, by, by alerting the authorities and doing all the good things a, a nice Boy Scouty kid should do. Um, and I think just really quickly, a lot of this, I really do think the, the, the DNA of the kids in it um, and you know, it very clearly is a fair, I mean, it, the book is based on the three Billy goats gruff. That is according to King, the seed of that entire book, you know, who's that trip trapping on my bridge. Um, but the DNA of these kids of it that go on to be the kids of, of all those Amblin movies and Goonies and Explorers and the monster squad and the gate and the kids of attack the block and the kids of stranger things. Those go back to Mark Petrie in Salem's Lot, who is the kid who is so in tune with pop culture and alienated from everyone else, but that pop culture is served as like boot camp to allow him to accept the ideas of vampires. And as soon as they appear, he is dropped and locked and ready to rock <laughs> and roll. And, and that goes right back to the Something Wicked This Way Comes kids who are sort of steeped in folklore and fairy tales who, as soon as the autumn people come to town, they do not run around going, what are these? Hmm, these are some strange signs. They say, these people are evil. Um, and that goes back to David McLean and Invaders from Mars, who reads comic books and all that stuff that rot his brain, but he's ready for the aliens from Mars. I mean, there is this sort of um, specific DNA of the heroes in it. The kids who are alienated from everyone else by their nerdiness and their outsiderness, but those very traits have made them more prepared than others to be the hero when the monster appears. Yeah, I agree that in I, I just rewatched Monster Squad, and that was definitely the most appealing aspect of that movie to me was this idea that these kids sit around in their clubhouse all day re rehearsing right. how to kill the different monsters, and then they actually get to use that knowledge. And that that's maybe one advantage that kids would have over adults is that kids tend to get really obsessed with like dinosaurs or like you know just knowing everything there is to know about whatever their um, you know favorite subject is. 
Yeah. Right. It's just sort of a fantasy, I guess, as you're saying, for for geeky kids that you could actually use some of this knowledge that uh, that that you think is so amazing, but uh, you know doesn't always uh, have a lot of practical application. Right. My favorite of that one is Lost Boys. Oh, absolutely. With the Frog Brothers, who are so so obsessed with with their with their comics, and so they're the only ones who know what to do with the vampires, but they can't separate what's comic book crap from actual lore. Yeah, and that gets carried over in, also in Fright Night, you know, where, like, actually his knowledge of horror movies and television is what saves the day. Yeah, but but one thing, can I just ask, Dave, to go back to your question of why it is so popular, when we were looking at some of these examples that, that people had brought up on, on Twitter and Facebook, many of which were the same examples that I had been thinking of, even when they weren't horror, like Goonies, for example, um, even the modern ones, is it something about the eighties? Is it something about people who grew up in the eighties? Because if you think about it, even the modern incarnations of this, and I'm thinking about stranger things and super eight, and now this, this reboot of it, they all have their roots in that period. And was there something about an, an, a particular exuberance of this trope, not just in horror, but also in, in adventures? Cause just the more examples I could think of, they almost all fell into that late 70s to, to early 90s kind of bracket. And I wondered why that was, and I, I didn't have any answers for it. Well, I mean, I think some of it is just the simple matter that a lot of the directors grew up in that period. And so they're hearkening back to their own childhoods. I mean, Grady probably has a lot to say about this, having written this book about horror of the 70s and 80s. I mean, just another thing that occurs to me is that... Um, that's sort of pre-internet, pre-smartphone. And I think a lot of these supernatural stories get a lot harder to hold together when the technology gets too advanced because it's harder. You know, it's, it's hard enough in movies like it to get the kids separated from the adults and so on. And if everybody has their smartphone, it just gets even harder. Well, yeah. And, you know, just to say two things, there were sort of two weird contradictory forces going on in the 80s, because I think both of the things you guys are saying about pre-technology and Internet and also uh, when these people who are making this uh, this cultural material grew up like. But another two things that are sort of contradictory. And one is the 80s was the last gasp of free range parenting. Um, I mean, you know, I, I was born I was born in the 70s and I remember in the 80s or late seventies, I wasn't allowed indoors during the summer. Like totally. I was, <laughs> my mom, like our, our whole excuse was like, I had to go to the bathroom. She'd be like, pee in the bushes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we were not allowed in the house during daylight hours during the summer. And the other thing that's sort of the reverse of that is in the sixties and seventies, you really had this loosey goosey approach to parenting, you know, like parents were really sort of like kids should have as much freedom as possible and be able to try as many things as possible and experiment with any things as possible. And then in the early eighties, this whole thing, and it really appeared in 79 and 80, your kids are in danger. Moonies want to abduct them from the shopping mall. They're going to be on the back of a milk carton. They're going to get molested at their daycare center. Satanists are going to give them stickers of Mickey Mouse that have LSD in them. This whole sort of panic about protect your children. I mean, 79 and 80 is really when that started um, and, and became this sort of huge cultural force. And so 
it's weird that everyone's fetishizing this sort of 80s, these kids fighting monsters, but maybe that's when everyone feels like the monsters appeared. I mean, you know, I remember getting these lectures at school that, that like Moonies at the shopping mall were going to give me a sticker of Mickey Mouse and Fantasia dressed as a wizard, and I was going to lick it because I was innocent and put it on my notebook because I'm a little kid who loves stickers. And then I was going to be tripping on LSD and probably murder my parents. Like, what, what's that, a Mooney? Um, uh, uh, Sun Young Moon, the, the Korean call. I don't know. My, oh. my South Carolina was obsessed. But that was literally a sixth grade lecture. I got it from fifth grade and sixth grade from Miss Graves. Like, and that was a school sh- sanctioned lecture. Um, so the 80s was when the kids were in danger, but the kids were still running around all over the place. See, John Lang, what do you think about this? What Grady is saying here about the 80s? Uh, that's why all these horror things are set. Yeah, there. no, it's it's really it's really fascinating to think about that larger context. I, I mean, and I guess what I'm thinking about in terms of it as well is, of course, in, in King's novel, the the original the, the the past events are all taking place in the 50s. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and the, and the, the present day events are happening in the 80s. And and what strikes me now um, is is that the 50s you know, to, to vastly oversimplify, you know, I think of as this very conservative time, um, in which, you know, we're, we're terrified of the bomb and what happens in the eighties, it's a very conservative time in which we're terrified of the bomb. It's the, it's the, you know, the, in the fifties, the cold war is really ramping up, yeah. blowing up bikini atoll and, and what have you in the, uh, in the eighties, it's looking like, uh, you know, we might actually go all the way. We, we might just see what happens when, when we nuke each other. And, and, there's, and there's this in, 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 both, uh, in both decades. And again, I, I, I feel I really have to say this is oversimplifying, but there's the whole, you know, we have to get back to family values and the American family and, and what have you. And it really, it really plays with that, right? I, I mean, the, the novel here I'm, I'm talking about, um, it really plays with this idea that no, in the fifties, it was all pretty bad. <laughs> it was, you know, even, even, um, uh, Bill, whose, whose parents are, and in some ways they're good parents, but they're, you know, Georgie is killed at the very beginning of the, yeah. of, of the novel. How do you, how do you come back from that? You know, it's, it's, um, so, so I think that there's, and now of course I look at, at our present day experience now, and we're in this time that, I don't know. Well, it's a crazy time. Certainly, the threat of nuclear war has topped up again, or at least you know, limited nuclear war. Is that is there such a thing? Um, but <laughs> but that kind of nuclear annihilation that's popped up again. We're living in this time where people are talking about we need to get back to the the family and whatever. Um, so so it, it strikes me that there's this odd kind of cyclical kind of of, of resonance to to all of this. Can I jump in for a quick sec? Because you said something really interesting about the 50s being this sort of conservative time. And I think, and I hate to use the word, it is a big, messy, sprawling, undisciplined novel. But I think it's also pretty genius. And part of the genius of it is, and this is right out of the first chapters, and so I'm not spoiling the second movie, but it's about these kids in Derry who defeated you know, Pennywise or whatever in the fifties and they've all grown up and forgotten it. And when they remember their childhoods, they remember these beautiful bucolic nostalgic images of the fifties. And it's up to, I think it's Mike Hanlon is his name, but Mike. Yeah. yeah he's the, he, Mike is the, is the, the, um, the archivist. The you know, librarian. He, he works in the, in the, he's a librarian and he keeps the archive. 
And he's the one black kid. And he calls them up and says, not so fast. You're not remembering that era right. It was an era of horror and danger. And we almost all died. And it was cruel and mean and sadistic. And I don't think it's a mistake that this is a book about a bunch of white kids who grow up to glorify their past. And a black kid calls them up and says, "Uh uh-uh, remember how it really was. Yeah, that is is really interesting, Grady. I'm I'm curious, when you're talking about the the free-range kids of the 80s, do you think that these movies are in any way a realistic... Were kids really that free-range? Would the kids all end up going into the sewers to fight a monster? Or do they have to kind of make the kids more brave and or capable and or, um, you know, knowledgeable or something to, to have these adventures work at all? I grew up in that era, and it is, I mean, I didn't fight a evil clown, but it is 100% my experience. Completely. I completely agree. And I mean, to, to relate it to Goonies is, is another one. I, I think it's completely plausible. Those kids, or, or, or uh, Stranger Things, these kids spend all their time on bikes, riding around, and they completely yeah. geek out on stuff. So Mikey and Goonies geeks out on One-Eyed Willie. He's obsessed with pirates and he knows all these little tidbits. And I can't, I can't remember who said it a minute ago, Grady, uh, that, that kids have this tendency to obsess about stuff and know all the little details. Um, and I think it's completely plausible that, I mean, we, you know, as Grady said, when we were kids, it, there were on the weekends and in the summertime, if the weather wasn't completely like even in 20 below, my parents are like, here's a snowsuit, go outside. I don't want to see you until sunset. And so it's completely plausible that they would, you know, go off for hours at a time and nobody would think it was odd. Is yeah. this a is this a real I mean, great. Do you think you used to work for like a paranormal investigation <laughs> company or something like that? Yeah, I worked for the American Society for Psychical Research, which William James founded in 1885 to investigate parapsychological events and spiritualism. So it's like a nonprofit that does this kind of thing. We were the first people into Amityville and the first people to say it was a hoax. So so are there like Scooby-Doo or like um, Stranger Things aged kids that you've ever heard of doing any sort of paranormal investigations like this? No. <laughs> no, just flat out no. I mean, I'm sure there are now because those ghost hunting shows are so wildly popular. Um, but I certainly never came across any of them. What would be the youngest that people would be would be involved in that? I, I don't know, man. I I just I mean, I honestly don't know. I mean, I I stopped working for them in like 2003, so um, I don't know what the kids are up to these days. <laughs> But, you know, I remember being a kid and like, you know, bad stuff would happen and you just wouldn't tell your parents, you know, Um, we there were bunkers in Charleston where I grew up, like, you know, that were sealed off that we got into that were like mazes underground that we played in. I mean, we would ride, you know, 20 miles on our bikes to buy fireworks and shoot them at each other. And I, you know, bought a great storage pouch for fireworks with the pockets of my shorts and wound up lighting myself on fire and getting like blowing off some fingernails and getting third degree burns. And we tried to cover it up. I was in so much pain. We couldn't eventually, but like we tried, I had skin hanging off my leg and we were like, don't tell our parents. Like it was just a totally different time. 
And you did, I mean, you did flirt with danger deliberately. I remember when we were kids, anytime you heard about a haunted house, you were there. you heard about a place that you weren't supposed to go, we had, uh, we had a, an Aboriginal reservation near our house. And the legend was growing up as kids that, that they, the, the people living on the reservation had the right to shoot anybody they wanted on site if you were trespassing. So, of course, all we did was ride our bikes <laughs> through the reservation because, we, I mean, so you, you kind of went looking for that sort of thing because there's that sense of immortality that comes with childhood and that, that wide-eyed sense of adventure that you really want to exploit. And I think that's one of the reasons that that kids versus monsters trope works so well or the kids having an adventure works so well is because it does sort of tap into that childhood sense of wonder and that and that feeling of simultaneous feeling of extreme vulnerability but extreme you know immortality that you can't you can imagine somebody else getting hurt, but you can't imagine it being you. Yeah. Well, also, you know, and this is something actually John might be able to speak to, but I know parents nowadays, I don't have kids, but they want to talk through things with their kids. They want their kids to understand things. But I got to say, when I was growing up, there was this, there, things were kept from you. You don't need to know about that. Uh, political things, social things, sexual things, things about that person who lives in that house over there. Um, and, and so there was an idea, like you're saying, Aaron, that if people were telling you don't go there, you should go there. It must be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> some, I want to know. I want knowledge. I mean, John, do you want to add anything as a, as a parent here? <laughs> do I want to incriminate myself? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it's, uh, no, I, I definitely have the, um, I, I have the, the same memory of, of growing up in the seventies of, um, you know, we lived at a, at a relatively rural location, but, but we lived about a, a maybe an eighth of a mile down the street from, uh, from an elementary school, which had, um, Oh, huge fields and, and, uh, basically a swamp behind it that, uh, the, uh, people who, uh, you know, principal, whatever the elementary school said, this is our nature preserve. And, um, and my, my brother and I, and, and, um, the next door neighbor, the girl who lived next door, and, and sometimes some of the other kids who lived a couple of houses down, we would go down to the schoolyard and we would, we would ride our bikes around the, um, around the, the parking lots because it was relatively safe to do so after, after school. We would go back in the woods and we would go really, really far into the woods, you know, into, into, uh, you know, places where there was two or three feet of, of, well, maybe two feet of, of, you know, of, of water and, 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 uh, hop from these little, you know, sort of mossy, uh, clumps, uh, uh, little islands as we, as we thought of them. Um, and then of course one of us would fall in, you know, and then we'd try to dry ourselves off before we got home. And, and yeah, it was absolutely, I, 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 completely uh uh agree with that you know, you try to keep things from your parents even when they were glaringly obvious you know there's something sticking out of you you know and your parents are like what's that and you're like nothing so, what are you so, talking about so, this? So, could, you know? so do you think that an it or a stranger things couldn't be set in 2017 i think it could but i i think you would have to acknowledge um I think the kids might be the same age, but they, they would all have their smartphones. And, and part of what the smartphones would be for would be so they're, they're, they could sort of keep tabs or the parents could keep tabs on them. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think kids are always curious. I, I think um, I think it also, you know, something that I, I thought about when I was a kid, a lot of my friends, maybe the majority of my friends actually lived in development. 
And there was very much a, a, a sense uh, when I would go over to, to hang out with them or, or that the development was a safe place to live, that the neighborhood was a safe place to be. Um, and you could ride your bike and you could go all around there because there, there was some sense that it was like this little town, um, even if it didn't have the, the commercial aspects of a town, there were, you know, no supermarket or, or, or whatever. But there was that sense this is this little community and it's, it's this little safe place. And so I, I, I don't know if that's still the case. I think it probably is. Um, and I also think it, it depends. I, I think these days you would probably, if you were trying to write something like, uh, uh, you know, your version of it, as it were, you know, kids fighting monsters, I think you would probably have to acknowledge that, that those kids, um, they might very well be the lucky ones. You know, they might have plenty of friends who are like, oh, my mom says I'm not going out there or, or you know. So the kids might have to sneak out, and it might be a bigger deal. The, the fact that they snuck out might really get them in trouble in a way that it doesn't. Um, you know, when something wicked this way comes, uh, Will's father looks at the side of the house and realizes that he built sort of a, a, a ladder on the side of the house so he can sneak out uh, if he, of his room if he needs to. And his father says, well, look, just promise me you'll only use that if you really need to. Uh, he doesn't say, take that down. We're good, you know, counseling for you, mister. So I, I think um, I, I think you might have to acknowledge the the change in, in in parental attitudes as much as anything. I mean, I mentioned that I just watched rewatched Monster Squad, and they actually do enlist the aid of an adult in that movie. Yeah. There's this elderly German guy that they get to translate um, Abraham Van Helsing's um, diary, and uh, yeah, that does seem to be kind of an unusual thing to happen in these movies to have an adult in on the you know, in on it all. And also the main kid's dad, who's a cop, like he really believes his son early on. Isn't it actually pretty, I'm just thinking about there, there's quite a few examples that I can think of, of there's the one adult, but there's for some reason, this adult is not able to help them or this adult themselves suffers from a credibility gap vis-a-vis -vis other adults. So I'm thinking, for example, of the grandfather in The Lost Boys, or the science teacher in Gremlins, or the uh, Winona Ryder in Stranger Things, that there's there's an adult who knows what's up, but for whatever reason, that adult is not able to help the kids, or they struggle to do so in part because all the other adults are like, but, but you shouldn't believe in this crap. Sloth in the Goonies. <laughs> yes, I suppose. Sloth in the Goonies. Um, I think you could get away with it nowadays, too, by using something that the Goonies did where they have Bran being in charge, right? So you have a kind of, she gives the impression of being not not quite a helicopter mom, but certainly a mom who's very concerned about, about her asthmatic son, Mikey, and very concerned uh, about his behavior and that he shouldn't get out too much. And she puts her teenage son in charge. And it's it's really Bran who kind of drops the ball yeah. there. Um, you could also set put it in a rural setting, which would of course bring up all the fun stuff about our primordial fears of the woods and swamps and other scary places where kids are in a rural setting, so they ride bikes because their houses are three acres apart and they don't have much for cell phone service because they're out in the boonies. I think there are ways to get around these things as writers. If you want, if you want to, I agree. And you know, one thing I have to give credit to the uh, the movie version of it for is it makes it credible to kids now because adults are ignoring what's going on because there's a supernatural sort of malaise over the town. 
Um, you know, they, they turn their head to violence. They, they watch horrible things happen to kids and seem to forget it almost instantly. And they, the movie attributes that to sort of some supernatural cause, some cloud that hangs over the town. And that's in the book, but they really play it up in the movie. Um, and I think that instantly makes it credible to people watching it now who go, Oh, why are these adults letting these kids get be? Oh, I see. Pennywise is messing with their minds somehow. I mean, another idea I want to bring up that seems to pop up in a lot of these movies is the idea that, like, virginity slash sexuality has some sort of supernatural significance vis-a-vis the monster, like how you defeat the monster or the monsters want to use your virgin power or something like that. I mean, that's in It, that's in Monster Squad. Oh, Monster Squad, yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's in a lot of ancient religions, though, too, is it not? Ancient mythology, I guess, is more accurate than ancient religion. Well, also, the, it's just the power cultural of fertility and virginity. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the difference between an adult and a child is having sex. I mean, and well, flat out. Well, one of the things that that I think is interesting is if you if you look at the kids versus monsters trope, you can kind of break it down into the younger kids versus monsters trope of the sort of Stranger Things. It vein versus the older kids versus monsters trope of the Friday the 13th Nightmare on Elm Street right. Halloween kind of vein. And they sort of serve different purposes. Um, for the little kids, you can kind of think back to, as Grady, you were saying, the sort of the fairy tale um, roots of all of this with your, your Hansel and Gretel and your, you know, whatever, myriad examples of, of little kids falling afoul of a monster, which was generally a cautionary tale to sort of don't be too adventurous out there in your ramblings, kids, because you don't know what sort of dangers you might come across versus the cautionary tale for young adults, which was invariably don't have sex or someone will impale you Hmm. in your bed or, you know, don't, don't be a, don't be a cocky jock. Don't, don't drink (laughs) all of these things that we don't want our teenagers to do as parents these are invariably the ones that end up getting slashed first. Well, it also goes back to fairy tales as well, right? I mean, you've got the older kids of Cinderella. I mean, it originally wasn't a glass slipper. It was a fur slipper. And, you know, here comes the prince who wants a wife. And the, the monstrous stepsisters are willing to mutilate their feet to fit them into this thing, to fit them into his expectations. Or Beauty and the Beast, which works a little differently, but... Um, yeah, this idea that somehow being sexually active puts you in touch with something, mon- Bluebeard, puts you in touch with something monstrous and dangerous that you have to navigate. Which is why Cabin in the Woods is so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, John Lang, do you want to come in this? Because uh, my impression is that, you know, in the era of Dracula, um, the Bram Stoker novel, that the sex all had to be... Um, you know, like the novel is just soaked with sexuality, but it can't be openly acknowledged because of the um, sense of propriety of that time or whatever. Do you have any perspective on how of how we get to this point where the sex the is is openly acknowledged the way it is in it, for example? Yeah, well, I guess it isn't in some ways, right? In the movie, I mean, I mean, uh, you know, the the. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the the. the yeah, novel thinking, thinking about the right, and, and that's one of the interesting changes to, to my mind that the the um, 
the movie makers have just said, nope, <laughs> we're, just, yeah. we're not going to deal with that. We're not in any way going to, to deal with that. Rightly um, so. Yeah, and, and, and if I were making the movie, I would have done the same thing. Don't get me wrong. I would have been like, right, whatever else we do, no way. Um, I mean, I, I think that um, what's interesting to me about, about it in some ways, just you know, sort of thinking, I, I don't know how to put it thematically or something, is, is that um, it's Georgie, right? Her, her sexuality when she's a child, you know. No. Um, Bev. Bev. Bev? Yeah, Georgie is the brother who gets his arm ripped off. Oh, God. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Brain uh, left. Blood sugar. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, Concentration yeah. anxiety. I don't know what that is. Anyway, um, but uh, but Bev's father, you know, really uh, creeps on her, as the kids say, um, sexually. And, and her own sexuality becomes this sort of source of shame for her and, and anxiety for her over the over the course of the novel. And I think that's, I think, and I think it itself in, in the novel, um, you know, as we know, when they, when they finally see it in its, in its form, it is this monstrous mother. Um, it is this inhuman, yeah. monstrous, monstrous mother. And I, I think that what King thematically wanted to do was with the, 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 the infamous uh, uh, sewer scene was to have Bev in, in some way reclaim her own sexuality in this positive kind of way. Um, maybe he didn't do quite what he, wa- what he wanted it to do, but I, I, um, and we, you know, can, and, and, and maybe should find it problematic for, for all kinds of reasons. But I think that sex for kids is problematic. It is, it is difficult. And, and I think that, um, yeah, all of the Friday the 13th slasher movies, whatever, it's all very simple there. Sex is dangerous, you know, and, and it, it, it will kill you. Um, and I, I think that that's one way of looking at sex, uh, but, but sex may do other things to you as well. And I, I think that, I think that horror um, still has a kind of a hard time kind of grappling with uh, with that and, and thinking about that overtly, I, I guess. I mean, I guess we can find all kinds of, of covert ways, you know, sort of displaced or symbolic ways in, in which that kind of material is, is dealt with. Um, but it's, it's tough. And, and I don't, um, I, I say this as a, as the parent of a 14 year old boy, you know, I, I mean, good Lord. Um, so I, I think, I think that's some of what's, what's going on there. I, I mean, if you go back to the the fifties, I mean, King makes this argument in, in Don's Macabre again, that a lot of the monster movies in the fifties, you know, I was a teenage werewolf. Uh, um, I was a teenage Frankenstein that these things are all about, um, basically like adolescent male sexual anxiety and, um, Oh, I turn into a werewolf. You know, I, I, I turn on this horrible monster. Look at me. Um, and, and I think there's probably some truth to that. I, I, I think that that's another way of, of expressing some of those feelings and, and some of those anxieties. I think actually, interestingly, a more recent film, uh, ginger snaps, uh, looks at things, um, it's one of the better werewolf movies of the last 15 or 20 years uh, in, in my estimation. And there you have a pair of sisters, um, one of whom is, is uh, attacked, I think it is early by a werewolf and is becoming a werewolf. But that's the, the filmmakers there tie that into her sexuality and, and the, the sisters sort of developing sexuality. So 
Uh, I think I've really lost the thread of this question. So I <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you, John, um, on the subject of these sort of sexually problematic things, I was floored watching, rewatching Monster Squad that a major plot point is that they need one of the kid's older sisters to be their virgin um, for their ritual. And so they use a nude photo of her to blackmail her into helping them by threatening to put it up in school uh, so that everyone sees it. And, you know, and this is just completely played for laughs. Um, yeah, it just, yeah. It yeah, just times, really have, times have changed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that ties into everything we're talking about. Look, we're all giving these like, and, and I am especially guilty of it, these really rosy pictures of like growing up in the 70s and 80s and this free range parenting and all this. But, you know, there was also, I mean, there was a real casual misogyny that existed back then that doesn't exist now. And kids now are <laughs> far less likely to be silent about something um, than we were back then. I mean, they're far more likely to speak out and, and which is, you know, uh, good in general. Are they? Oh, are, are God. you sure about that? Absolutely. Hmm. I mean, at least, at least from what I've seen, I mean, I know there's exceptions and differences. I think in general, I mean, look, I mean, there, there were, I think it's way like I went to a school that had a pedophilia ring that wound up being a lawsuit brought by 40 something students. And I think that's a whole lot less likely to be pulled off now where those kids would be silent for almost 30 years. Um, I think it probably still happens, but I think kids are way more likely to speak out now when they see something that's wrong. Oh yeah, I'm. I don't necessarily take issue with that. Um, I I don't know that that kids nowadays are any any sharper than kids any other days about about picking up subtle cultural cues that that passed past the notice of even adults uh, as far as casual misogyny goes. Oh right, but like I'm talking about things like I mean, I, when I was growing up, someone who was attacked or mugged or beaten or an attempted rape the last thing they would want to do is tell their parents, which is like the first thing you should do. And I think now kids are many kids, not every kid, not most kids, but I think in general, kids are more likely to tell, to know that that's something wrong that they should talk to an adult about. Hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting, Grady, when you bring up the misogyny, I mean, I think it's worth noting that all of these movies that I can think of are a group of boys with one girl it's kind of tagging oh, yeah. along well and that's and why i think john's who, example who of ginger snaps is who the what's that who who absolutely must hook up with somebody at some point right almost well, almost always or, if or not, in Bev's hook case, up, there's like a there's like a <laughs> <laughs> like a romance subplot going on somewhere for the female character right and, and that's why i think john's example of ginger snaps is a, is a movie is such a great one because ginger snaps is really reclaiming that sort of like kids in peril narrative and the werewolf narrative from a really, really strongly, I think, feminist point of view. Yeah, I don't know that one, unfortunately. Oh, it's a great Canadian movie, too. Oh, man, I'm derelict. Um, gosh, you're going to get your citizen. <laughs> Justin Trudeau is on his way to your house right now. Um, but, you know, one thing I was going to say really quickly when John was just talking a second ago is the, one of the big differences, I think, between It the Movie and It the Book is It the Movie is a movie about kids fighting a monster and, and spoiler alert, triumphing. It the Book is a novel about growing up 
I mean, it's a very, very different thing. The, the, the stuff with the adult kids isn't as important as with the kid kids. And I think that's a huge difference because the movie is very, I think, non-sexual, except the stuff with Bev's dad, which is really different from the book because in the book, her dad is physically abusive and, and emotionally abusive, but he is never sexually abusive or creepy to her until he's possessed by, by it, by Pennywise. Um, and then it becomes very overt and sexual. And in the movie, his creepiness is very sexual from the word go. It occurs to me that one thing that does is sort of like a female-centric kids first monsters kind of thing is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and it strikes me that there are sort of three categories of kids first, or like in, in this way, there are three categories. There's like kids with no training. There's kids like Buffy the Vampire Slayer who are trained to fight monsters, and then there are kids who have their own magical or supernatural powers, and that those are kind of completely different sorts of kids first, particularly the first one and the second two are completely different kinds of kids first monsters stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, John Lang, did you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. I, I think that, um, Buffy, it, it's sort of funny because Buffy does, she does fit into this, but I, I, it, it's funny. She never once occurred to me in in the run up to this, uh, to this conversation, which I don't know what that says about me. I, I, I guess that I never think of her as being, she, she is obviously often in peril, but I never think of her as being in peril in the, in the same kind of way that the kids and it are. Um, I never, uh, I never doubt that she and the Scooby gang, but we are with Scooby-Doo again, but I, I never doubt that they're going to succeed. There, there will be costs. There are always costs. Um, but with, um, with it and, and with some of these other narratives, there, there is more of a question of, Oh man, are they, are they going to be able to do it? I, I think, um, um, for me, one of the successes of something like Stranger Things was it, it caused me to, to suspend my, my typical, oh, come on, I know they're going to get out of this okay, to, to, oh, well, I don't know, are they? Is, you know, are they going to get the, the kid who's in the upside down? Are they going to get him back? I don't, I don't know. Maybe they won't. And, and so I, I think, I'm not, sure what I, I'm not sure what to think of that exactly, except that maybe that, that it's why I, I, I see Buffy, although I, I, I I don't know, parse these definitions, I guess, but I almost see her as much as, and that show as much as sort of dark fantasy as, as horror, you know, it, it sort of straddles the line be between the, between those, those uh, subsets or whatever. Um, I, I think the other, um, it, it strikes me too, that there, there's something going on, isn't there? With the way that kids, because I, I think the gravy is absolutely right that, that Mark in, in Salem's lot is is the the prototype for a lot of this stuff that that he's the kid who sees what's going on he recognizes it and tries to do something about it um and yeah you know how can you not love the frog brothers edgar and alan frog um (laughs) and i (laughs) (laughs) but they um and and what's what's interesting about those characters is they interact with with older figures as well that there's mm-hmm. there's um it's different from it where they're all they're of the, of the roughly the same age and they all have to do this thing together in in salem's lot or in the lost boys yeah ultimately grandpa kind of saves the day doesn't he um yeah. 
does. It's, you know, and, and in the meantime, it's younger brother, older brother, um, and, and mom ultimately is in, involved in all of this. So, so those are, there's a, there might, that might be also another way to, to think about it. You know, do you have a group of kids who are, um, more or less the same age in stranger things, the same thing happens. You wind up with this, um, you know, the, the little kids, the, the teenage the older teenage kids, and then the adults as well, who have the sheriff, uh, um, and, and Winona Ryder who have to try to help out. And just big props to Corey Feldman for being in so many of these movies. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that. I was like, which which Corey was that? I can't remember which Corey was. There are so many Corey Feldman examples of kids versus monsters. But if we could go back to Buffy for a second, and I also, uh, I'm not sure why, but Buffy didn't immediately occur to me. And, and, I, and I think it is indeed this sense of Buffy never felt like a kid to me. She just felt kind of kick ass from the jump. And so you didn't get that sense of vulnerability and maybe that's explaining it away. But, but Buffy is another really good example of, of how sexuality is really bound up in the narrative there. And, and what I think is equal parts interesting and frustrating as a woman in this stuff is even in the modern incarnations, we don't seem to be able to get away from this, um, this sense that the the woman is often struggling with her sexuality and how it plays into it. So even in in Stranger Things, for example, the older sister, what's her name again? Uh, Anyway, she, in one of the earlier episodes of Stranger Things, um, is having sex with her boyfriend or on the cusp of having sex with her boyfriend when something bad happens to one of her friends. And so she's, in a sense, punished, and her, her impetus as a character going through it is that she feels very guilty that this thing happened to her friend because her friend was was waiting for her to make out with her boyfriend. And Buffy also has like a lot of paroxysms of angst through the series about the relationships that she has and all that kind of stuff. And that's not a criticism of them in a standalone sense. These are these are all perfectly acceptable narrative arcs. It's just interesting that I would like to see a narrative that doesn't necessarily rely on that trope of, of the woman feeling somehow guilty or being punished or feeling she should be punished for her sexual expression. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. Well, I mean, I a hundred percent agree. Um, it's, it's really, so coming out of doing paperbacks from hell, it's very, very weird because one of the things I had to put reading all these 70s and 80s paperbacks, I had to put a warning in the, in the introduction because there is so much sex in these books. Um, I mean, and, and largely because they were written from a point of view of, well, these books need some violence and some sex and some weird stuff, you know, and we'll just throw some sex in there. But the sex gets so weird. Um and so a lot of stuff from the 90s forwards, um, sort of post-splatterpunk, post-serial killers, post-sort of the death of this horror boom of the 70s and 80s, feels very puritanical to me. Um, I mean, you have stuff like um, John Shirley's Dracula in Love, which involves a Dracula 
who has a three foot penis that has two glowing yellow eyes at the end <laughs> that, that kills women. And at the end of the book, he realizes that he's in love with a woman who's one of his victims and she represents everything human. She's like the earth mother. She's everything mm. human and good and mortal in this world. And then her vagina opens and he crawls into it while it glows and winds up like nestled in her womb. I mean, this stuff was like not covert or subtle. Um, and and that was sort of par for the course. And then you sort of, like you're saying, Aaron, get up to stuff like Buffy and, you know, the slasher stuff and all the serial killer stuff where it's like the second you have sex is the second you get murdered. Um, and so it's a really weird thing. It's like the 70s and 80s were this quick, I don't know, um, brief oasis where sex could get weird and funky and be normal. Yeah. And, and then the line, not. And the line between violence porn and porn porn is oh, yeah. so, so thin in some of these movies. And, and, and it's really interesting as a, as a sort of a cultural reflection, isn't it? This like how intimately bound sex and violence have become and how we almost need one to fully appreciate the other, to, to really reach catharsis, if you will. Um, you, you know, you, you kind of have to have both of them. And, and it's, I mean, it's definitely interesting. Like, i trying to sort of think through, for example, why the story of Dracula or vampires in general are, are, are so often deeply, deeply steeped in sexuality. And of course, in this era of lots of urban fantasy that spilled over into to all the other beasties you know all the all the shifters and the fae and you know that whole paranormal romance genre but before that was really a big thing or at least before it became a big cultural phenomenon um i mean that that portrayal of of dracula as being a, a sexy story um goes back pretty much all the way <laughs> And and why sure. is that? What is inherently sexy about a man sucking on your neck? Let's pause and, and consider. I'm not sure. Well, well, I mean... Wait, wait, I feel like we're getting off of Kids First Monsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um, like, we already... We have, there's a se- we have a sex and horror um, panel, if you guys want to go check it out. That we already did. <laughs> okay. Um, but I, I'm so curious, I think, Freddy, I think though... Clearly that, uh, clearly that panel needs to have a part two, is what I'm getting <laughs> <at>. <laughs> But it does go back, though, doesn't it, to something we were talking about earlier, about if you look at what are some of the biggest horror tropes, if you think about horror tropes in general, so many of them are such an awkward fit with kids. And yet you have this kids versus horror trope that's huge. Yeah. I want to ask you, Grady, I mean, when you're talking about how things were different in the 70s and 80s versus today, I mean, one of our listeners, Frederick Arrow, said that he doesn't generally like this kind of kids first monster stories, but that he really likes super eight and it and stranger things. And certainly watching it and um, super eight, which I did this week and then going back and watching monster squad. I mean, I had issues with the the first two of those movies, but there's no comparison in quality between those and something like monster squad, which is like super cheesy by comparison. And I'm just curious what, if you agree with that, do you think that the quality of these kinds of kids first monster stories is increasing over time? Well, I mean, you know, by quality, do you mean like production value or do you mean like, I don't know, the, the satisfaction a viewer gets? Well, you, the, yeah, I, I guess, I guess production quality, but also just the writing. I mean, the, um, you know, like the, like it is, you know, the, the kids feel more like kids and the funny things they say are 
actually funny, not just kind of um, tasteless. Um, and the monsters are scarier and so on. I don't. I just. I, yeah, I mean, I think you... I think that's. I mean, I think a lot of that's production value, and I think just you know, uh, you know, a movie made in in twenty seventeen is going to feel a lot more contemporary and realistic than a movie made in nineteen eighty three. You know, or eighty six. But so you're, uh, not, you're not pining for the golden age of kids vs. monsters movies from the eighties or something. Well, I am pining for one thing, which is that, and I think it's something that Spielberg really glommed onto early in his career, which is that. And I hate to keep harping on this. Jesus, I sound so boring. Um, but there is a sort of fairy tale quality to these stories and you want them to feel adventurous and you want them to feel exciting and you want them to feel cool. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's that sense of wonder kind of thing. And I really do feel like, um, you know, there's, I enjoyed it fine. Um, but there wasn't the sense of wonder I had watching it that I did when watching, say, like, I don't know, The Goonies for the first time. And, and maybe that's just familiarity. I, I don't know what it is, but I don't know. There's there's a real sense of cynicism that hangs over something like it that doesn't hang over something like The Explorers or or Monster Squad or The Gate. And maybe that's just me. Okay, so Attention Geeks Guide listeners, I have an important announcement. So at this point in the conversation, we got disconnected from John Langan, and we're not able to get him back. And so it's now three days later, and we've got everyone back, and we're going to finish up this panel. And so if our voices sound a lot different, or we seem to not really remember stuff we said five minutes ago, that's why. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just asked Grady about whether he thought uh, Kids vs. Monsters movies from the 80s were better or worse than movies today. And he said that he thought the production values were better, but uh, that movies like It have a certain cynicism to them. So, uh, John Langan, what do you think about that? How do you feel about Kids vs. Monsters movies today versus in the 80s, say? Well, you know, I, I it's interesting because what I was thinking about in, in this regard is um, or, or are the Fright Night films. Um, the, the first one of which I, I, I dearly love, um, and the, the recent remake of which, uh, I, I saw, I don't know, within the last several months, and I was really interested to see it. And I, I had that, that same kind of feeling that, that the, the, the remake had some wonderful visual effects in it, and, and it still had some kind of neat moments in it. But, um, despite, uh, both, you know, Colin Farrell and, and, uh, and David Tennant and, and, and also the, the late, uh, Anton, uh, uh, Yelchin. Um, it, it doesn't really compare to the original. The, the, there's a certain kind of, uh, I don't know what it is. Is it nostalgia? You know, I, I don't think it's just nostalgia that's causing me to, to say this, but, but there's a, there's something about the original, a freshness to the original that I, that I don't get in the remake. And maybe that's just by, by, a virtue of it being a, a, a remake. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure. And yet I, I find myself thinking that's not always true, right? There are remakes that we watch. And in some cases we say, you know, wow, that was better than the original. Um, obviously, um, here we are three days later. I still haven't seen it. I'm <laughs> sorry. Um, but you know, there, there certainly is, is one, uh, seems to be one contingent of viewers who feel that this remake is better than the original. Um, and so I, I, I'm not sure, um, 
I, I feel you've always got to be careful, right, about sentimentalizing the past because a lot of times what you're sentimentalizing is yourself. You know, I was so much younger and more innocent there, or at least I, I want to believe I was. Um, but I, but I do think a lot of those, um, a lot of those, you know, even the first stab, <laughs> pardon the whatever, <laughs> at, uh, at it, um, does have a, a certain kind of uh, a freshness to it. They are trying something for all that it's sort of, it's ter- it's big and it's sloppy and it's messy. And, and you know, was Tim Curry ever really that scary? Um, I had that controversy right there. <laughs> um, I, uh, um, I, I, I still, um, I, I think there's something to be said for, for that. So I, um, I, I think I would I would sort of agree and disagree with Grady simultaneously. So how about Aaron? What do you think? Agree and disagree. That sounds safe. Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not risking anything. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think my own sense of things, and, and I feel this way not just about horror movies, but about a lot of remakes in general. I think a big part of it is nostalgia. I think another part of it is you can't see something for the first time twice. Um, and so a, a lot of the, um, the interest of seeing something for the first time is no matter how much they, they tinker with a reboot or a remake, this, there is going to be a degree of familiarity, which maybe takes some of the shine off. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I really do, you know, I do think that there, at the risk of, of sounding like a curmudgeonly old person, I do think that there is these days a tendency to, to substitute flash for soul, um, and, and I'm mindful of the, like, for example, um, so for, for, for my latest villain of the month feature that's coming out in a couple of days, it's, um, a contrast of the two cons from Star Trek. So from the wrath of Khan um, back in the eighties to the, the con in into darkness. And in a lot of ways, if you compare those two films, um, the, the second one is on paper a lot better in in terms of our contemporary sensibilities, the dialogue is better. The music is better. The performances are better. And yet it falls completely flat in a number of ways. And I, and I think I see that in something like, uh, and one of the reasons why I think we tend to be really excited about something like stranger things that, um, it's kind of the best of both worlds because it has that sensibility from, from the eighties, the soul of the eighties while having, that slick packaging and that, you know, better dialogue and more nuanced performances that we've come to expect from more contemporary films. Uh, and I do think that we, we lately seem to be substituting a, a, a lot of explosions and, 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 and gore for actual fear and emotion. Um, and this is a huge generalization, obviously, um, and doesn't apply to all these movies, but, but I really, I do think that on the one hand, like when I watched the, the two con movies, and I suspect, although I haven't done this, that, that it would be similar if you went back to some of these. Um, and, and earlier, Dave, you were talking about watching Monster Squad and finding it cheesy. I mean, The Wrath of Khan is almost insufferably hammy from start to finish. Um, and it doesn't really hold up in that way, particularly when you watch them back to back. And so you almost pine for this. And again, I think that's why something like Stranger Things is so successful. You pine for this best of both worlds um, where you where you lose that hamminess that doesn't really work for a contemporary audience, but you still have that um, you know that that more that more believable just just that little thin veneer of cynicism that makes it um, perhaps a little bit more believable for for the cynics of the modern day. Hmm. All right, so we need to start wrapping this up pretty soon. I did want to just mention a couple other 
Kids vs. Monsters things. Um, so Gravity Falls, I want to mention, is a, quite a good cartoon about a brother and sister who move, who spend the summer, I think, at a, um, a town, a small town where all sorts of supernatural things are happening. Um, and I also want to mention Monsters, Inc., which is a very Kids vs. Monsters uh, animated cartoon, but it's told from the point of view of the monsters. Uh, and I think it's really clever if you haven't seen it. And then our listener, Zach Chapman, mentioned this Dan Simmons novel called Summer of Night, which I have yeah. not read, but uh, I love Dan Simmons. So I, I'm kind of curious about it. Has anyone read that? Yeah, yeah. So what do you guys yeah. – so Grady, did you say you've read it? Yeah, I started it. Oh, you didn't like it that much? <laughs> no, it just it, – it, it was very – Dan Simmons, I think, was going through a very Stephen King phase when he wrote it, and it feels very it-like. Oh, kind of derivative. To me. Oh, to me, it does, yeah. I don't know, John, what do you think? Um, you know, I, I liked it, um, although I, I, would, um, I, I would agree it took me a couple of tries to, to get through it. Um, and, and part of that is because, yeah, I, I agree that he was, uh, he was in full sort of, um, yeah, you could call it Stephen King mode, but, but also sort of, you know, Ray Bradbury by way of Stephen King. These, these oh, yeah. boys who are, are living in, in, I think it's the American Midwest. It's, it's been a few years since I've, I've read it. Um, but they're living in the American Midwest and, and, um, weird things are starting to happen and, and, um, and maybe there's something supernatural going on. At, it's like an old school, I think, maybe. Yeah. And, um, and he, he spends, you know, a, a lot of time really trying to develop the characters and really trying to explore the inner lives of the characters. And then, um, I, I, I'll give a spoiler alert. You know, one of the interesting things that he does is then th there's one character that you think is almost the sort of the author stand in character, this really, really bright kid who's, who's, uh, uh, possibly, you know, sort of nascent writer and, and what have you. Um, and he kills that character. Uh, and it's a really interesting move. It, it, it gives the book a, a certain kind of an edge that, um, um, that, that, that a lot of other narratives of, of this stripe don't necessarily have, you know, that the, the characters who are going to be sacrificed, as it were, who are, who are just going to be the, you know, lambs to the slaughter. Uh, they, uh, they go, we don't, we don't learn a lot about them. Whereas in, in, um, in, in this novel, that, that kid's death really, um, really resonates and, and, I, uh, my memory of it, uh, was that I wish the supernatural elements had actually been a little bit more developed. Like, like I thought that he was, um, for, for all that he was in that sort of Stephen King mode, as far as the characters went, as far as the supernatural stuff went, um, I can remember feeling, oh, I wish he'd given us a, a bit more of that. What, what's interesting is, uh, just as an aside, is, is that that novel then continues to inform his his later novel, A Winter Haunting, Summer of Night, A Winter Haunting, uh, which I think is is a fabulous novel. It's it's one of my uh, it's certainly one of my favorite Dan Simmons novels, and and I think a, a really really fine but much more muted kind of a kind of a horror novel where one of those characters, um, and actually I want to say another one of the characters. Um, winds up show, shows up in um in his vampire one of his other vampire novels uh children of children of night or children of the night i think i think one of the characters from um from summer of night shows up there too well, that's cool so does anyone have any other kids vs monsters things they want to recommend to people that we didn't talk about yet yeah i would just like to throw in uh someone one of the listeners mentioned this online and i think it's worth mentioning which is attack the block 
which was the 2011 Joe Cornish movie about aliens, uh, an alien invasion that sort of starts in uh, um, a housing project, basically, in the UK. Um, and the movie begins with a bunch of black and um, half-black, half-white kids mugging a woman. Uh, I think she's a nurse on the way home who's white. And then they're interrupted in the mugging by this alien sort of crashing to Earth. And um, it's this really, it's really, really great. Um, it's amazing that Joe Cornish hasn't had a bigger career as a director. He's had more of a career as a writer. Um, but the movie's fantastic. And the thing that's so amazing is um, they get so much mileage out of having this sort of economic thing where, you know, it's basically, you know, housing council flats, which are which are where the aliens are invading, which are sort of, you know, the lowest of the low in the UK. Um, and so it's not a big policing priority to fight an alien invasion in council flats, but also by having... Um, these kids who you initially think of, oh my God, it's these horrible muggers and they're really terrible and they're terrorizing this nice woman who wind up being the heroes. And the nice thing about it is horror is often very conservative and often kids versus monsters movies or books wind up with the status quo being reestablished. And the status quo that gets reestablished just because these kids are so uh, treated as marginal in this narrative is the big reward, the end, the moment where he marches up at the end of Star Wars and gets a medal hung around his neck is being arrested by the police um, and being, you know, tarred as a criminal. And for his friends, this is this validation. Oh, my God, he's a hero. Even the police hate him and have to arrest him. And it's, it's a really great inversion of that sort of reestablishing the status quo. The status quo is reestablished, but in a very sort of like countercultural kind of way. It, it's really fantastic and was a total bomb when it came out. No <laughs> one saw it. See, Grady, having written paperbacks from hell, do you have any anti-recommendations? <laughs> you know, not really. This is a weird genre. It's sort of the kids versus monster. There, there was a very brief boom in summer camp novels in the late eighties, um, that weren't very good, but there are very few of those. Uh, kids versus monsters, honestly, so many of the paperbacks of the seventies and eighties are about adults, um, almost exclusively. Uh, I, and I, and the one kids versus monsters novel that springs to mind is there's a book from the eighties because there was a big boom in Indian Native American curse novels in the 80s. I mean, huge. They were all over the place. And and it's sort of a wave that totally disappeared um, and, and really doesn't exist anymore. But that sort of stereotype of, oh, the Indian burial mound, you know, comes from that. But there was a book called Skeleton Dancers. Um, and I think it was like 86 or 87. But it was about two twin brothers who I think were 14. Uh, so not quite kids, maybe almost teenagers, but, um, they wind up accidentally awakening, um, a secret mummified tribe of gay assassin Native Americans. I think they're Cherokee, but I'm not 100% sure. They're sort of like not a tribe. They're like kids who are sent away from a tribe and they form their own sort of super uber killer tribe. And, they wake up and come into the present and what they want to do is take these twin kids and um, 
turn them into to zombies because they're like, it's the only way you'll be happy. Look at this fallen white man's world. There is nothing here for you but but horror and death and, and just terrible things. And it's actually kind of a great book. Um, and, but it's, again, one where they reestablish the status quo. I mean, they bring in the SWAT team who machine gun these, you know, several hundred year old mummies who are just concerned about these twins into sort of dust. Um, but it's this sort of neat trope of two brothers who are, who are teenagers reaching out across this gulf of, uh, hundreds of years to these other two twin brothers simply because they're concerned about them and the hard, kind of horrible world they're going to live in. But yeah, beyond that, I don't have much. <laughs> All right. So then I guess just the last thing I wanted to ask, Aaron, is, you know, um, you mentioned that you like Stranger Things. Oh, I guess you didn't see it, right? But um, Finn Wolfhart, who was in, he was one of the kids in Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. He is also in the new It. So okay. I, was just, I just want to recommend any, um, you know, Hollywood executives, if you're listening, just Finn Wolfhart plus Monsters, obviously, is just uh, box <laughs> office gold. He's so, the Corey Feldman of our time. Uh, so I was just going to ask if you thought he was going to be the next Corey Feldman. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. For his I'm own sake, I better. hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Corey Feldman was in all my favorites. I seriously think I could probably watch Goonies and Lost Boys for the rest of my life and not feel bad about it. Like if I never saw another movie. And partly because they are cheesy. So those are your Desert Island uh, movies? They might be on the list. They, yeah. I mean, they're definitely on the list for sure. Well, you know, I think that's one thing, though, and I don't want to start a whole new tangent just because I know we're wrapping up, but there is something really interesting about this idea we've all been talking about where 80s movies and, and earlier feel somehow more authentic and true in a way that modern movies don't. And I really think there's a case to be made that we're all sort of suffering from this image sickness, um, there's so many more images and so many more stories and so much more exposure to this stuff. Um, that it, that it's, it feels good to get back. If you made a horror movie now, you have to take into account the internet and cell phones and cameras and reality shows and, and, and how many screens there are in our daily life. And I think when you go back to somewhere like the eighties, sort of, it does feel a little more, I hate to say innocent, but we're away from this complete flood of narrative that we have now, which is, which I think is, is sort of like makes us a little numb to it. Yeah, this is a complete tangent, but um, I have heard people suggest that the reason that science fiction has gotten less popular and epic fantasy has gotten more popular is because science fiction just kind of reminds you of the present too much and doesn't feel like enough of an escape or enough of a change. Whereas epic fantasy, it is getting to a world without all the screens and all the information overload and all the technology everywhere. So yeah, Yeah, there's probably something to that. You know, and I, I also kind of wonder with the, um, the eighties horror films, you know, like, okay, like lost boys, for example, uh, or fright night. Um, you know, these kids discover that there are, there are vampires threatening them and they do something about it. Um, the same thing in Stranger Things, right? I almost wonder if, if part of what, what the appeal of these films is, is that they represent an era when agency was possible even for, for kids in, in a way that it doesn't seem to be so much anymore that, that, that we, um, we feel more helpless and, 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 
and I, I, I say this in part, like looking at, at it from the other side of things as, as the parent of a, of a, of a 14 year old and, and thinking, man, you know, I'm so nervous. I'm so sort of afraid for him and, and of, of the, the world that's out there. Um, and it's hard to, to give him the kind of freedom to have the kind of agency that, that the, that the characters in those movies do. And I, I wonder if, if that, you know, in, in Stranger Things, the kids, their, their friend goes missing. And so they do something about it. They try to find him. They, they, they try to solve the problem. Um, and yeah, the parents are saying to them, Oh, you, you really shouldn't. You should really let us do it. And, and the parents are trying, but, um, but they never give up. They, they, they keep trying. And I, I think that that, um, that's something that, that I, I think is, is sort of deeply, deeply resonant for us. You know, I, I showed my 14 year old a, a couple of weeks ago. We were having like our own little impromptu film festival and I showed him the Lost Boys and he loved it. And I said, Oh, you didn't think it was too scary? And he said, Well, yeah, it was kind of scary, but you know, like basically they fought back. You know, they, they didn't, uh, they, they, and of course grandpa comes in and saves the day, but, um, but they, they, uh, they, they weren't just, um, completely terrorized and overpowered by the by the vampires so i i feel like that may be there may be something there too you know it seems like there may be an opening for the next great kids first monsters horror thing to be really contemporary and the kids use their knowledge of uh, snapchat and instagram to defeat the monsters (laughs) (laughs) well but you know if you if you think about what we were talking about earlier right about the the way that kids love lore and and kids you know when you're a kid um, you, you're told about vampires and you kind of know they don't exist, but you're worried that they might. And you learn everything there is to learn about all this bizarre stuff, right? You know, garlic bulbs and, and, and whatever else, holy water, you know, bury them under running water and all that. Um, you, you learn all this stuff, I guess in some ways, right? Because a lot of things in the world don't make sense to you. You know, how does a car work? I don't know. Um, why do planes fly? I'm not really sure. Um, and, and so like, Vampires and I mean they're weird, but I don't know that they're necessarily all that much weirder than a lot of other things around you, and and so you think today that that you know the internet offers you the opportunity if you oh there's a vampire out there well let me see what they you know what what we can Google and and we'll we'll figure out how to deal with it. Well, that's the problem in every horror movie or horror book, right? The first thing you have to do is cut the phones. The sec, you know, you have to take away all this access to the outside world. And so, um, you know, the more access you have, the more time you have to spend taking that away because you want to strip people down until it's just them. I mean, you, you do and you don't. I mean, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, you could look at all of this, this glut of information and, and new technology and, and, um, new software and all this sort of thing as a constraint. To, to the story, or you can make it integral to the story. Right. Um, and it, it's definitely the case that a lot of horror movies, you know, even back in the 80s, you had to cut the phones, as you say, to isolate people. And that's one way of going about creating fear and vulnerability and tension. But there are also a lot of shows that have really embraced technology as a means to, to actually, to the horror itself. You know, those, those ones where the, where the phone is part of it, or I'm thinking of the ring as being a really good example of, oh, sure. yeah. of where right. that comes in to, I mean, it's part of it. And so, you know, what if the kids learned that taking a photo of, of the demon with their cell phone, somehow weakens it or captures a piece of it or, you know, bends it to their will in some way, just, just a random example. I think, you know, it, there's, for for every door that it 
closes the, these new horizons. I think, I think it opens more doors and it's just a question of creativity. I think for me, the more fundamental problem is the one that John alluded to about agency. And I think that that's been an ongoing thing. And it goes back to the discussion we were having before about free range parenting. And if you think about a hundred years ago, you know, what a 13-year-old was responsible for in a typical Western household compared to what a 13-year-old is responsible. Nowadays, it's great if a 13-year-old is responsible for doing the dishes. Um, where, you know, back in the day, they, they, were, they were cooking and, and sewing and using firearms and, and right. all the rest of it. And it's harder to imagine that today. And so, you know, from, from a writing point of view, from a storytelling point of view, that seems to me to be on the one hand, the bigger obstacle, but also the more interesting obstacle. Um, it, it offers, if you can find a way around that, it's almost by, by nature a fresh way around it that gives you a new angle on the kids versus monsters story. Well, yeah, that makes me think. I mean, there have certainly been some episodes of Black Mirror that I think show how to do horror using where, where technology is the source of the horror and doesn't uh, connect you with other people, but or like connects you with other people that you don't want to be connected to and so on. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, maybe the the way forward for these kids' first monster stories is to get a little bit more Black Mirror with them. Well, and I think yeah, and I think that's true. I mean, look, there's there's a part of it that's just um, um, a failure of imagination on the part of old people like me, <laughs> you know. Um, but also, you know, just when you were saying that, Aaron, I don't know if anyone's read my app. I think it's my absolute darling that novel that just came out. No, no. But it's it's really fantastic. I mean, and and just the reason I thought of it is Stephen King's like, oh, this is the best book of the year. Aha, tie in. But, I mean, it's basically <laughs> about a kid, a young woman, I think she's like 14, who's been raised in isolation by her dad, who's something of a, like, survivalist prepper. And so he's taught her all these skills about, you know, finding your way in the wilderness, using a gun, you know, killing an animal and being able to field dress it. All this stuff to make her self-reliant. But he's kept her completely isolated from the world around them. And the book becomes basically a kid versus monster book, except the monster is her dad, who's been engaged in this very low level form of sort of child abuse. And she has to use all these sort of like skills she's learned from him, these things that make her uh, self-sustaining and, and sort of able to, to, to live in the wilderness and survive to to defeat her dad and escape him. Um and so it's sort of like tying up with what Aaron was saying about like, you know, this idea that kids used to have so much more responsibility. It's a, it's, it's kind of interesting, hmm. but it's called, I think my absolute darling. <laughs> all right. So, yeah, so guys, as I was saying, I want to, we're all out of time and I want to wrap this up before something else technologically goes wrong. So uh, anyone have any final thoughts before I wrap things up? I'm good. Yeah, not. I just feel a great sense of shame that I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> a lot of pressure. We gave you three so. extra days. I know you did. You you did, and I squandered them. And I just <laughs> I hang my head in shame. All right. Well, I think I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> so we've been speaking with Grady Hendricks, John Langan, and Aaron Lindsay. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Aloha. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks very much. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Grady Hendricks, John Langan, and Aaron Lindsay for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Joe Curtis87 from the UK and Puppy JDB from Canada. Puppy JDB writes, Been listening for years. 
Sorry it took so long to review this podcast. My wife and I love your interviews and panel discussions. You've given us so many cool new adventures to explore together. We're both teachers and have used authors you've interviewed in our classes around the world. Thanks for all the awesomeness. So big thanks again to Puppy JDB for that great review. I'd also like to give a special thank you to Jorge A. Rivera, Matthew Kressel, and David Ossoff IV, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Got Science, the new podcast from the Union of Concerned Scientists, for sponsoring today's show. Learn more over at gotsciencepodcast.org. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.